Hello everyone and welcome to the Going Up, Going Down podcast brought to you by The Athletic. My name is George Ellick and I'm not sitting even two metres away, I'm sitting absolutely miles away from my co-host Ali Maxwell, the Ben Pearson to my Paul Gallagher. <laughs> We're going to be chatting to defender James Chester on loan at Stoke from Aston Villa, part-time chef, part-time quizmaster and current athletic columnist. We'll also be joined on the phone by Andrew Umbers, former chairman of Leeds United and partner at Oakwell Sports Advisory on the possible financial impact of COVID-19 on the EFL. Ali will also be waxing lyrical on some young British managers in the In Focus section and I'll be telling you a tale in EFL Rewind about a fiery Italian in the West Country. <laughs> this podcast and all the other athletic podcasts are available for free on all podcast platforms. They're also available ad-free on the athletic site. And if you haven't got a subscription to the athletic, you can get one with a 40% discount if you head to theathletic.com forward slash EFL pod. That's E-F-L-P-O-D. Give The Athletic a go today. As for us, we're going to get straight into our first chat of the day, an interview with James Chester. Joining us on Going Up, Going Down this week is James Chester, on loan at Stoke City from Aston Villa, Wales International, but more importantly at the moment, The Athletic guest columnist James Chester. Hi James, how are you getting on? Good morning, I'm very well, thank you, yourself? I'm not too bad. So we gather that uh, dealing with isolation as we pretty much all are, you've, you've turned to a bit of writing for The Athletic. How are you finding that so far? Yeah, I'm quite enjoying it. Yeah, it's something I've not done before, so I thought it was a, a perfect opportunity to, to give that a go. I guess also you're spending, well, significantly more time at home than you would normally. Um, and in isolation and with a young family, you've spoken a bit about that uh, in one of your pieces for The Athletic. How's it been for you? What's it been like spending a bit more time than usual at home? It's been quite nice, to be honest. You know, as, as footballers, you, you spend a lot of time away away from home so um yeah it's been nice to to be at home and, and take a few jobs off that have been have been building up that have have been starting to irritate me and yeah to spend more time with my family if we were perhaps still still in in season I, I might miss these these little things so there's got to be positives in in every situation and, and thankfully they're mine i'm going to start calling you chef chester because it appears that you've got bang into cooking as well in isolation. Any any key recipes that you've learned over the last few weeks? What's your specialty? I've put my hand to soup in the last couple of weeks. It's not not something I've done before, but I've made a few soups. Um, there's minestrone on the menu this, today. And, uh, I've also put my hand to bread. So, yeah, with a, with a lot more time, I'm, I'm finding myself able to do uh, a few more things in the kitchen. James, you mentioned in the first piece you wrote last week that... Uh, you're putting your weight in the kitchen because helping out with the with the little boy over the bath isn't great for your knees, which sounds like a very good excuse to me that I'm sure dads around the country, having read that, would have pulled out for themselves. But obviously, with the work regarding your knees, is the fact that you're unable to train out on the grass, is it a different kind of, of preparation to ensure that you're kind of staying fit and keeping healthy? Yeah, I found myself in a similar situation as I was through through the summer just gone it's, with the, the injuries I have it's just important that I keep on top um, with the strength strength work um, that stabilises you know the, the knee itself so you know, I'm quite fortunate that you know, I've got a few little bits at home which means I can I can maintain that 
another thing that you've uh, put your hand to, James. You're telling us just before we got on the call, you're hosting late night quizzes on Zoom. Is that with <laughs> Stoke teammates? Is that with with players, with friends? Uh, who, who are you doing that with, and where are you getting the quizzes from? Can you share them with us? <laughs> I actually got the quiz from a friend at school. He, he had he'd hosted one over the weekend, so you know, I, I, I pinched his format and, and changed a few few questions here and there, but made it a bit yeah, tougher. The, yeah, a little bit. My, my wife seemed to think it was really tough, but I said you, you can't get, can't have everyone getting every single answer correct. So, who was taking part in this quiz? It was uh, lads that I played with, um, you know, through my career, and you know, become really good friends. So Paul McShane and his wife, uh, Joe Dudgeon, and, and his girlfriend, who, who sadly retired a few years ago. Uh, there's Robbie Brady and his wife, Corey Evans, and, and his wife, and, and Scott Wharton as well with with his partner. So. It was a it was a it was a good good evening to be fair. Can you tell us who won and who and who won the wooden spoon as well? <laughs> I could have told you who would have won and who'd have lost before the quiz began. <laughs> who were they? Joe Dudgeon won. I've I've joked with him for many years that he's got Bernard's watch because he seems to have more time in the day to do <laughs> more things than anybody else. And Scott Wotton. He got the wooden spoon. James, obviously as a, a Wales international, someone who was a, a big part of that famous Wales team in Euro 2016, as well as the Stoke season having been suspended. I imagine it's been a real disappointment for a lot of the Welsh players that the Euros have been delayed too. Are you talking with your Welsh teammates about about how to, to cope with that disappointment? I think in, in my teammate's case for, with Joe Allen, it's worked out, it's worked out really well. Um, you know, he picked up a serious injury a couple of weeks ago and it meant they would have missed the Euros, but because of the cancellation, it, it gives him a great opportunity to to play next summer. This this story ends with him winning a player of the tournament, I think, doesn't it? I've seen this in films. It, it could well be. I don't think he was far off um, playing the tournament last time. So it would be a it'd be a great story for Joe. But as far as the squad goes, I think there's obviously disappointment. But you know, knowing that it's it's going to happen again next year, it, it just gives the the lads you know something to to aim for. Who? Have you faced uh, this season or, or in the last past couple of seasons in the EFL who, who's really stood out as, as being one of the top talents that you've seen? Easy at, at QPR. You know, looks a, a real talent. Um, I think we, we faced him at Aston Villa as well last season when he, he first came back off, off loan from, I think, Wickham. Um, and it was the first time I'd, I'd seen him and he, yeah, he looks a, a really good player and someone that could you know, quite easily make um, the step up. I think in terms of, of players at Stoke, you know, there's, there's an awful lot of players that, you know, I, I knew and, and have played before, but um, Nick Powell wasn't one of them, and I've, you know, I've seen his career from afar, and you know, playing with him, he's, you know, he's got a, a ridiculous amount of talent. How different is it, James, for you? Obviously, you're, you're on, you're at Stoke, but you're only on loan at Stoke, so your parent club, Aston Villa, as well. How how are you sort of? Dividing your time? Are you having to do group chats with both clubs, or who's who's running your training? Who's running your 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 knee exercises? How's all that happening when you're on loan at a club? A bit of both, to be honest. Um, you know, obviously, a, a vast majority of my time through rehab was spent at, at Aston Villa and with Ollie Stevenson, the the strength and conditioning coach there. So, you know, I've kept in touch with him and and the physio at Aston Villa who who did my rehab just to make sure I'm, I'm doing the correct things. And um, I've also had a lot of information from the, the staff at Stoke regarding 
or keeping keeping fit and, and making sure that you know we're, we're, we've got a decent level you know when when the the league gets called back well thanks so much for joining us james keep healthy keep quizzing keep cooking it's been a pleasure <laughs> having you on the pod this week thanks very much guys nice to talk to you Right, now it's time for the in-focus section of the podcast. We've really enjoyed going through a host of different topics over the last few weeks from individual players, future superstars, from uh, exceptional youth teams and George last week on Ivan Tony, top goalscorer in League One. Now, there are all kinds of fans and followers of the EFL. There are those who just follow their team, those who maybe have a wider interest in the division that their team is in. Of course, there are the best kind, people who love all three EFL divisions equally. Uh, And then those who potentially just focus on the championship. This in focus is for those who don't keep a keen eye on League Two because there's more than one reason why you should. But today I'm going to focus on one really exciting part of League Two and covering it this season, which is that there are five teams at the top of League Two, clear of the rest. They are Crewe, they are Swindon, they're Plymouth, Exeter and Cheltenham. And the interesting thing for me, the most interesting thing that links the five clubs is that all five of them have young British managers. They are all between the age of 42 and 38 In fact, their respective ages are 42, 41, 40, 39 and 38. And I think it's just worth telling you guys about them because they're really interesting individuals. They're doing excellent jobs. And it's possible that we might be talking about them much more uh, higher up in the English League pyramid. I mean, in the Premier League, for example, I'm not saying that tons of managers go from League Two to the Premier League, but there are three current British Premier League managers, Chris Wilder, Eddie Howe, Nigel Pearson, who've all managed in League Two early in their career. So there's every chance that one of these names or more could work their way up and be towards the top of the English game in future. I'm going to be giving a little bit of background into each individual, the style that they play, their experience of management so far, and and just anything else I can tell you that I think is of interest. Starting with the team at the top of the table, David Artel's crew, Alexandra Artel, was a centre-back. He was a classic League Two centre-back, played almost his whole career uh, in League Two for various different clubs, having started with his hometown club, Rotherham. Something really interesting about a Rotherham team from 2000-2001 is that Mark Robbins, Paul Hurst, Paul Warren, the current Rotherham manager, and David Artel were all in that side. So four future EFL managers in one team. Uh, But Artel was always a little bit different as a character, and he certainly spent his time outside of training differently. Instead of playing video games, Artel got himself a bachelor's degree in forensic biology and a postgraduate certificate in biomedical sciences. So uh, you can see that this is someone who's thinking a little bit differently. A nice wrinkle to his career was that towards the end of it, once Gibraltar started playing international football, he played seven games Uh, as centre-back for Gibraltar against the likes of Lewandowski for Poland and Thomas Müller for Germany as well. And Artel's been in charge for the longest out of these five managers, just over three years as crew manager now. Uh, The finish is 17th, 15th, 12th. But it was just halfway through last season that we realised that things had changed. 
that this crew team had reached another level. They actually picked up the most points in League Two in the second half of last season. And that rolled into this season. They've been simply dominant. Their one real issue last year, the away form has been fixed. That was holding them back. This is a crew team with a core of academy players, three older pros. He calls them dad's army. There are three pros who are at 35 plus, one of them being Nicky Hunt. Uh, Nicky Hunt used to play with UC Askelainen at Bolton, and now he plays with Will Askelainen, UC's son, who is the crew goalkeeper. Uh, as for style, it's very easy on the eye. They're the best attacking team in the division. They've scored five goals more than anyone else. A high possession game. They really do keep the ball well. Very technical players, as the crew academy have always produced. Playing 4-3-3, and with a penchant for really smashing teams. They've scored four or more five times in the league this season and no one else has scored four more than twice. He's a, a strong personality, Artel. Often rubs people up the wrong way. He's not, not afraid to really get into his team after a poor defeat. And the same could probably be said for Richie Wellens, who's certainly a big character, certainly someone you don't want to get on the wrong side of. Wellens, the Swindon manager, had, I think in EFL terms, you'd say a magnificent playing career. He may not have played at the very top level, but as a player, especially with Blackpool and Doncaster and Leicester, where he was captain, he was an absolute legend and such a quality central midfield player. Uh, as for coaching, he was John Sheridan's first team coach with Oldham before being handed the reins as manager. It was a tough time for Oldham as a club. There was a lot of transition with the playing squad, a lot of interference coming from above him. And Oldham did get relegated, his first taste of management. Now, for some, that would not only put them off, but they might struggle to get another job. But... He did tempt Swindon to hire him and they'll be glad that they did because since he took over midway through last season, it's a 50% win record in the league since he, he breathed new life into the club and they've won 21 of their 36 league games this season. Uh, similarly to Artel, Wellens wants to play, uh, I guess, what could be considered quite a modern approach. Um, they want the ball, they want to press. It's slightly at odds with stereotypes about League Two, even though League Two football has developed hugely uh, in the last few years. Um, but this side are flexible as well. Away from home, they are brilliant on the counter-attack. At home, they've had to find a way to break teams down who sit in a low block, and, and they've succeeded. You can see with the goals tally of Owen Doyle and Jerry, Jerry Yates, Doyle, Miles clear at the top of the goalscorer uh, standings in League Two. It's been an amazing first two years of management for Richie Wellens. He's certainly someone to watch. As is Ryan Lowe. Now, Lowe had himself a serious career as a goalscorer, mainly in the third and fourth tier in League One and League Two. And he was a, he was a classic goalscorer who got better as he got older. He didn't rely on pace, but he became a proper bagsman, as they say. He scored 103 league goals in a six-season span uh, for five different clubs, Chester, Berry, Sheffield Wednesday, MK Dons and Tranmere. Uh, he actually finished his career at Berry low uh, and immediately took charge as manager for following their disastrous campaign where they, in League One, basically signed a load of players to get them up to the championship, spent way beyond their means and ended up being relegated instead to League Two. Low, in spite of everything that was happening off the pitch, as the club was coming tumbling down, to be honest, managed to maintain and inspire a team on the pitch to reach automatic promotion last season, his first year in charge, despite everything falling apart off the field, wages not being paid, being paid late, etc. Uh, of course, with Berry having gone bust, it was time to move to Plymouth, where he's playing the same formation with some of the same players who he brought with him from Berry, the same exciting attacking football that he played with Berry now 
down at home park. A 3-5-2 is a system for Lowe, where Artel and Wellens are more of a 4-3-3 guys. Uh, very much a 3-5-2, but, but with, with wing-backs who are so involved in the attacking phase, uh, with Danny Mayer as a sort of roaming midfielder. Uh, and Lowe is just... He's such an infectious personality. You can see in the way that he inspires the club's fans, but also uh, how, inf- how, how much... The players want to play for him. He's, he's, as a character, very loud, very positive, very funny, very energetic. Uh, Matt Taylor is the Exeter manager. He didn't play in the Football League until he was 25. He was a centre-back uh, that didn't make it into the EFL until, well, his mid-20s and then had a, a few years with Exeter and Charlton before dropping down the leagues again. He was um, sort of linked with Paul Tisdale and, and moved to Exeter uh, to work as their under-23s manager. He ended up taking over f- when Paul Tisdale's long tenure came to an end. Uh, at that stage, Exeter had lost in back-to-back playoff final defeats and taking over from a manager who'd been in charge for so long was got to be considered uh, quite the task, sort of just in terms of uh, emotions and psychologically more than anything but having just tinkered the recruitment slightly having tinkered the system making the team a bit more physical a bit more of a physical prospect for the opposition uh, Taylor had a, a good first season in charge they just missed out on the playoffs and this year they've been right at the top playing three at the back uh, this is a different sort of three-five-two to Plymouth it's fair to say uh, it's a sturdy defensive unit first and foremost I'd say but they also attack generally from wide, the most crosses in the division uh, for Exeter. They always play with a target man. It used to be Jaden Stockley. Now it's Ryan Bowman. Uh, and one thing that's really stood out and impressed about Taylor's Exeter is that even if they're not dominating games, the tight games tend to go their way. And that normally nods to a team that has uh, that manages games well, that has good yeah, has good game management and uh, and strong character as well. And that's what Taylor's instilled into this team. Such a young manager still. Uh, and lastly, Mike Duff. Yeah, this is a defender who played in the top six tiers of English football for just two clubs. He was at Cheltenham for eight seasons, non-league, League Two, League One, and then at Burnley for 12 years, mostly in the Championship, but two in the Premier League as well. And that's where his relationship with Sean Dyche became very strong. When Duff retired, eventually having played long into his 30s. He was the under-23 manager at Burnley before being offered the Cheltenham job. And to all intents and purposes, uh, it it felt like a lot of people thought he made the wrong decision to take the Cheltenham job because of the risk involved and how comfortable he was being linked with Burnley to to such an extent. But in an article on The Athletic uh, done by Burnley writer Andy Jones, he says, look, he, he wanted to be the person that every decision you know, whose who's, who's every decision meant something. Uh, and that's what he is at Cheltenham. He took over after a terrible start to last season. They were right down the bottom uh, and almost immediately improved things. Now, he plays a three-at-the-back system as well, and that's something of a theme amongst some of these managers. And again, like Taylor, it does start with the defensive structure. Cheltenham have the best defence in the whole EFL. So immediately you can see that as a defensive coach and a defensive organiser, this is basically an elite manager to get this Cheltenham team as the best defence in the EFL. Like Crew, uh, he found a way this season to improve the away form and that's what's seen them go from mid-table team to challenger. Uh, it's quite interesting to me that with such a strong relationship with Sean Dyche, Duff even says, I went in with my own ideas and I wanted to Burnley fi it to go 4-4-2, to get them fit, organised and hard to beat. But we couldn't win a game. Now we've gone almost completely the other way with 3-5-2, expansive, open, attacking football. Uh, and that's 
his own stamp on things. He moved away from the Dyche philosophy and now we've got a Duff philosophy and it's working at Charlton. So hopefully, uh, if you don't follow League too closely, you can have a listen to that, pick your favourite and follow their career because I think we've got f- five really talented young British managers at League Two level, some of which will taste promotion this year and they're all ones to watch. My question to you, therefore, is, Ali, which one do you think will go the furthest in their career? Who do you think will end up being possibly you know, the next Chris Wilder? Of, of this era? Yeah, it's a really good question. I think um, I, I've, I've been leaning towards Richie Wellens out of the five of them, um, potentially with some bias because we interviewed him for, the, for a podcast last year and his just the way he spoke about the game, the way that he explained his ideas of how to build a club and improve a club and the way that he's managed to implement that, which is the, which is the much bigger battle, that has just really impressed me. I think it's uh, it's not an easy feat with very little experience to go in to overhaul both the recruitment and the character of a whole club, and have achieve uh, and and to achieve success on the pitch as well. So I'd probably lean towards Wellens, um, but to be honest, you could you could pick any of the five. And and uh, George, I know that you're something of a Mike Duff fanboy, uh, the uh, the Cheltenham manager. I am. Yeah, I just think sometimes when you look at the job as managers are doing, they should be compared upon what they are expected to do. And with Crew, with Swindon, um, there was certainly an expectation for them to be doing what they're doing, but that just wasn't the case with Cheltenham. Um, and, and in fairness, with Exeter as well, you have to give some credit. I mean, I, I said in the summer that I thought Ryan Lowe would have been the perfect appointment for Sunderland to make uh, instead of Jack Ross. He's done very little this season to suggest that wouldn't have been a good call. I think he's someone who's... His management style and his on-pitch demeanour um, just suggests to me he's, he's destined for big things. So I would say that Lowe is the one I would say could possibly go to the very top, but, but I think they're all exciting managers. So we're delighted now to be joined by Andrew Umbers. Andrew's current role is senior partner, partner at Oakwell Sports Advisory. Oakwell provides specialist corporate finance advice to sports entities and solves commercial challenges in sport globally. Andrew, we spoke earlier and you said as a proud Yorkshireman, you named the company after Barnsley's ground. But of course, it was another Yorkshire club where you were on the football front line as Leeds United chairman. And you've had a long city career in the past at both Credit Suisse and as CEO of Evolution Securities. So we're basically hard placed to find anyone hopefully better to talk to in terms of both the financial side and the footballing side uh, with the impacts of COVID-19. So just a more general question to get underway. Uh, and what do you see being the, the long-term financialist impact and footballing impact that, that the, the virus will have on the EFL? It's a very good question. Um, the first thing you've got to understand is the backdrop of the EFL is that 90% of the football clubs are trading as technically insolvent companies. So um, what's driven that are player wage inflation, ambitious owners and governance procedures. And... I think quite a lot's been written and they're right that player wages have grown disproportionately to revenue growth um, and football really does to re- need to recalibrate its cost base and um, I think the, the word that everybody will be thinking about in the future will be reset. There needs to be a cost over revenue reset in every sport, not just actually in football. Um, I mean, when you, when you look at the, the, the overall background, and look at the 2018 cumulative numbers for the whole of the EFL, it lost £460 million. Your total losses, notwithstanding the further losses um, that um, 
are set to be announced uh, for 2019 are going to be uh, circa 630 to 700 million quid, which um, it's not a good place to be. So there are COVID-19 is clearly going to have some meaningful financial ramifications. COVID-19 very specifically should act as a reset for the league to look at, I think, maybe three or four things. How the league is financed, that's um, sources of capital outside of just the owners, who um, everyone is always relied, each club is always relied on. How it's administered, secondly. So that's financial sustainability, governance. Should there be a separation, for instance, of governance and ownership? Um, the reason why FFP has gone up since 2013-14 is because the clubs have voted for it. Um, potentially that's a conflict. Um, for a full positive effect, new finance sources should go hand in hand with better governance and administration. And only then do you get true sustainability. And lastly, and very specifically for the football fan, I think both the FA Cup and the Carabao Cup may not survive. The Carabao Cup, from a scheduling point of view, for next year looks less likely to have the EPL clubs committing to it. And the EPL may force the uh, FA Cup to be played on a Wednesday to replace the Carabao Cup after round three. Um, so a myriad of um, impacts, but the backdrop is, um, is really quite nasty. You speak about the need for a reset and you also talk about the Carabao Cup and the FA Cup maybe not surviving. But before that reset is able to happen, how likely do you think it is that other clubs, I mean, we've seen it happen to Bury last year, how likely is that other clubs will go out of business during this time? I think smaller clubs are going to be harder hit. Um, but that's not necessarily because they stand to lose more in absolute terms. In fact, in many cases, the opposite um, is true. EFL, central payments, are the same to all clubs, and the bigger clubs have a higher proportion of matchday revenue and so lose more income when games are cancelled. And I'll give, I'll give you an example for, for, um, for Leeds United, um, which is my own home club, um, for those that have ever doubted it. Um, and <laughs> um, if you look at the 2018 published um, accounts, turnover was uh, just over 40 million quid. Um, and wages as a percentage of um, turnover were um, 69%. So wages and salary were 28 million. 69% um, 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 pretty, pretty um, uh, reflects a well-run business, actually. And, um, but the problem is match day um, is a very important part of Leeds United's business. Um, and... Um, 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 as a consequence, um, the bigger clubs are going to be um, hurt harder. For Leeds, you know, we would, Oakwa would estimate the impact for no more football will be about 10 million quid. I mean, that's pretty, pretty severe. And, um, um, you know, that's um, um, why it's been really good to see the players' salaries being deferred. In fact, they're the only club in the top two tiers to have done so. So, um, well done, Leeds United. And I think just very specifically coming back to your question. Um, look, many of the bigger clubs have greater access to funds, you know, be that owners with deeper pockets or because they're in receipt of additional sources of income. Sometimes it's a parachute payment, of course. Um, and as I've alluded to with um, Leeds, if um, clubs can reach agreements with players over wages, it's going to shield some of the larger clubs from the worst impacts of the virus. 
But, you know, many of the smaller clubs don't have access to that form of emergency capital. Therefore, they really, really will feel this um, um, very significantly. Brilliant. Thank you so much. That's Andrew Umbers. Thank you very much for joining us. And fingers crossed that Leeds are back on the My pitch pleasure. very soon. Thanks to our good pals at beer52.com, you have the opportunity to sip eight delicious, painstakingly sourced craft beers from around the world. All you need to do is go to www.beer52.com slash going and pay the postage of £4.95. And if that wasn't enough, as a listener of The Athletic Podcasts, you'll get two extra free beers. So that's 10 free beers. Beer 52 are beer pioneers. They travel the globe to find the best and most interesting beer from the very best craft breweries. They are now the world's most popular craft beer discovery club. Each month, Beer 52 deliver you a case with a different theme. So far, themes have included Germany, Korea, Belgium, South Africa, California, New Zealand and many more. As an independent UK company, Beer 52 are also passionate about the UK craft beer scene. The beauty of Beer 52 is that you can leave any time. The power is in your hands. Your case will also include the award-winning craft beer magazine Ferment and a beery snack is chucked in too. Just go to beer52.com forward slash going to get your case free. And don't forget, right now, going up, going down listeners, get two extra free beers. And now for the popular final feature of the Going Up, Going Down podcast, it's EFL Rewind. Last week, I talked about Freddie Eastwood and his love affair with Southend. I know that George felt like he needed to step up this week. He's been pretty excited to present me with this story. I have no idea what it's going to be. (laughs) George, take it away. I've got to be very careful with my tone here. Um, We are back to how I... um... I seem to side with managers and this feature and you seem to side with players and that, that is the case again this time round. And I'm going to talk about a manager who when he was appointed, his first job as a manager, his first job in English football, a lion can't stay in a cage. A lion has to be on the pitch. So this is my job and this is my life. Do you know who I'm talking about? No, I don't. It is Paolo De Canio's spell at Swindon Town. Wow. (laughs) He was appointed as manager on May the 20th, 2011, after Swindon's relegation from League One. The chairman, Jeremy Ray, was a big West Ham fan and was said by later, a much later date, by the owner, Andrew Black, uh, to be obsessed with Paolo De Canio. Whether that's a good reason to appoint a manager or not, I'm not sure. But either way, soon after relegation into League Two, De Canio was appointed and has always seemed to be the case with these managers. We've spoken about it before. The first thing he did was bring in a whole raft of players from the continent who nobody had heard of. Alberto Camazzi, Matteo Lanzano, Etienne Sejas, Alessandro Kibocchi, Landa, Gabi Lodondo all turn up at the county ground within the first six weeks of him arriving there. You don't need me to tell you that by the end of the season, none of them were still in the squad. But unlike some previous EFR Rewinds about managers coming in. This isn't a tale of woe. This isn't a tale of misfortune because De Canio's time at Swindon was unprecedented in terms of success. But of course, there was massive controversy in amongst it. So we'll start at the beginning. I mean, there's no player, even as a player, the, the sublime and the ridiculous followed him around wherever he went. 
whether it was pushing over referees, uh, whether in a Sheffield Wednesday kit, whether it was scoring one of the most iconic goals in Premier League history for West Ham. He's someone who caught a controversy and class absolutely everywhere that he went. His opening day uh, for Swindon, his first match was against Corral Alexandra and they won that game 3-0, fielding this raft of players they had brought in. But they lost their next two games. And the fourth game of the league season was against a certain Oxford United. And for people who maybe don't understand the rivalry between Oxford and Swindon, this isn't coming from me as somebody who has a, you know, a, a bit of a ticket in this race, we can say. The, the rivalry, I think, surprises some people. Ali, I know that you came to a game uh, with me a few years ago at the county ground and were probably quite surprised by just the level of rivalry here. It's not just one of those EFL rivalries where they don't like each other. It's pretty nasty. And coming into this game, Oxford and Swindon hadn't played each other for nine years. Oxford winning the last one uh, before before this game. Decanio himself has a ridiculous record in derbies. He scored for Lazio against Roma at the Stadio Olimpico. He scored in two old firm derbies as well. In one of those old, old firm derbies, he was sent off during half time for the way that he was treating the referee. He'd been booked in the first half and got his second yellow yellow card inside uh, in the tunnel. Um, he played for, for Milan against Inter. So you get the gist. In the build-up to this game, <laughs> Tacanio says it's a bigger rivalry than Lazio and Roma and says that it's the most important derby of his career. He then... Uh, Swindon fans break into Oxford Stadium in the week before the game and burn STFC onto the Kassam Stadium pitch. Oxford's best player at the time was a certain James Constable. He was a striker who scored 26, 26 and 17 goals in his three seasons for the club, running into this one. And De Canio comes up with a plan. His physical presence uh, is, uh, is massive, you know. But he's a great, he's a big Swindon uh, uh, fans. Everybody knows this. Also the Oxford fans knows that he's a Swindon fans. So... Uh, never know in the life, and uh, we will see. So also Swindon fan knows that he's a Swindon fan. Everybody knows that he's a Swindon supporter. So, through and through. So, you never know if one day I can have under me, it would be good, it would be fantastic. Probably. Especially because he's a good player, but especially because he's a Swindon fan, he can feel the cost more than the others. Remember, he's a Swindon, Swindon, through and through. So you can hear that Decanio's <laughs> obviously trying to unsettle uh, Oxford star player James Constable by telling the world that he is a Swindon Town fan and that he would love to sign him. It's fair to say the plan didn't work. Oxford run out the game 2-1 winners. James Constable scores twice and runs the length of the pitch to kiss the Oxford badge in front of the away fans. Paolo Di Canio, not for the first time in the season, is sent off. But I spoke to uh, Benjamin Wills, who's a, a Swindon fan, who is a friend of mine and Ali's um, and a, a journalist covering Swindon amongst other things in, in football. And he says that he remembers as a boy being at this game and Paolo Di Canio coming over to the, to the home fans after the game, pointing at the sky, saying, we're going up, pointing at the pitch, saying they're staying down. Very apt for this podcast. And he said, despite the crushing defeat in a derby at home, he came away from that game smiling after that gesture from Di Canio. And that passion is something that we see a lot during his spell. Not always in a good way. Nine days later, Leon Clark had signed for the club 11 days previous to this. His debut was against Oxford. Nine days after that game, after a Carling Cup defeat at home to Southampton, 
After the game, uh, Clark and Decanio have a very, very public falling out in front of the tunnel. Decanio is trying to drag Clark down the tunnel. Clark is refusing. And it's once they get down the tunnel, when maybe Decanio is no longer in clear sight, then you can really see the fisticuffs emerged, we can say. He, uh, there's obvious pushing and shoving. They're being held apart. And in true Decanio style, he does not hold back on his assessment of Clark in the aftermath. I'm sure that uh, he wanted to do this in front of everybody because he wanted to leave. Because uh, I discovered after the game, not before, otherwise I'm never going to play him, that uh, two days before he asked to leave, after seven days. I'm sure because in here we are so professional. He doesn't want to be professional because in here we work hard. He doesn't want to work hard. He showed this since the first day he joined us. He's absolutely lazy person, lazy professional. But it's not anymore my problem. But this is what I think because what's happened, if there is not the reason, he has a big problem because there wasn't no one reason. And obviously, even if he was a messy, he never going to play my team. I don't know if there are many clubs that want to sign him. I hope for him because also we can be free uh, quick. But I don't know who want to get who want to get it. So despite a, a tumultuous start both on and off the pitch, suddenly the form turned. The summer recruits were very quickly cast aside. And if you look back at the team, there was real quality running throughout it. Matt Ritchie was a star attacking player. Paul Caddis at right back. Aidan Flint at the back. Nathan Thompson as well at full back. Even Michael Timlin, a very classy player in midfield. A 2-0 loss at Macclesfield at the end of September was their last defeat until Boxing Day. Next up, after that defeat, was a trip to Sixfields. One all going into injury time. Alan McCormack picks up the ball and breaks forward. And you can, if you watch the highlights pack, you can see Decanio. I mean, you often see managers waving their players forwards. He is basically blowing them forwards from his, uh, from his dugout. McCormack breaks forward, sets it inside to Tavita, who crosses it in for McCormack himself to poke in at the back post. Decanio absolutely loses it. I mean, you see Mourinho star runs down the touchline. He runs across the pitch to celebrate with the Swindon fans in front of the, uh, in front of the fans with the Swindon players. And again, Benjamin, Willis says that this, Benjamin Wills says that this is one of the most iconic moments in Swindon's recent history. Of course, again, he was banned. Uh, he had a touchline ban after being sent off here. He doesn't even wait for the sending off. He walks straight down the tunnel as he walks back. And after this game, he says, if they want to send me off in every game, no problem. I will win this league anyway. He spends January trying to sign Constable from Oxford. And then when Constable turns him down, he's, he says that he never wanted them anyway. Classic Decanio. And then we get to March and it's Oxford again, this time at the Kassam Stadium. They've won 10 league games in a row coming into this game. They'd, won, they'd lost one game in 21, they're top of the league. And in the lead up to the game, Decanio thanks Chris Wilder for the defeat that sparked their season. What happens next? Well, James Constable is sent off after 10 minutes of the game for an alleged elbow. I've watched it back and it's fair to say it's pretty soft. I asked, I asked James Constable for his memories of the game and he said to me, there was more of the same in the build-up to the game. I felt they had a game plan to try and unsettle me. Since that game, I've spoken to a few of their players that day and they have told me that that was the plan. Try and get me sent off. I was gutted at the time. I knew I hadn't touched him. Felt him behind me, tried to roll him and run onto the ball. Next minute, I'm surrounded by eight red shirts waving imaginary cards. The ref comes running over and shows me the red card. I was gutted. It's fair to say, knowing what we know about Paolo Di Canio, he was probably on the receiving end of this treatment quite a lot in his playing career. So no massive su surprise to see him, him pulling it off here. But somehow, 
completely against the run of play. Oxford scored twice in the next eight minutes and hold on with 10 men for 80 to win 2-0. Lee Holmes was a standout player for Oxford, setting up both goals. So guess what happens next? Two weeks later, Holmes' loan at Oxford is up. He turns down the offer to stay at the club to the end of the season and signs for Swindon Town. <laughs> no way. Decanio, after this game, despite losing it 2-0, runs onto the pitch, swinging his scarf above his head. This was a classic Decanio move. The only time he failed to do it was after a 1-0 win over Plymouth in the week where his mother had died. He stayed at Swindon, took training all week, flew back to Italy for one night, then came back to oversee the victory. Apparently, this was classic in terms of the commitment that Decanio and the... You know, the, his commitment to the cause, his commitment to lead Swindon to victory. But that was the one time he didn't do his crazy celebratory scenes afterwards. But they were promoted in the end. They absolutely cantered to the title with a goal difference of 43, 93 points. Interestingly, they won 29 games, drew six and lost 11. So you can see the real Jekyll and Hyde performances there. There's just six draws. Quickly on to their, their second season into League One. They take seven points from their first three league games. They then travel to Deepdale to play against Preston North End. Wes Fodderingham had kept three clean sheets so far this season. He'd kept 28 clean sheets in 47 matches in his Swindon career. Within five minutes, he has a clearance closed down and Preston take the lead and go 1-0 up. Nicky Rowe then makes it 2-0 at no fault whatsoever of the Swindon keeper. But on 21 minutes, De Canio decides to substitute Fodderingham off at 2-0 down to replace him with Lee Bedwell, 18-year-old Lee Bedwell. This was Bedwell's only appearance for Swindon Town, his only ever Football League appearances. Fodderingham absolutely loses it. He refuses to go and sit on the bench when, when he walks off the pitch. He's walking towards the tunnel in the corner before suddenly, I mean, we've seen football players kick out at things on the floor. He takes a massive swipe with a water bottle on the floor, turns around and shouts what must be a four-letter word back at Di Canio. Fair to say, Di Canio isn't happy. There is no nothing wrong to change in a goalkeeper, especially if we don't talking about Czech. No, have you? Have We're you, talking about Wes, 20-year-old. Last year he didn't play even one second football, professional football, and just when he met me. We gave him the opportunity to play a professional football. What did you make of his reaction when he came off and kicked the bottle? He didn't look very happy. Ah, uh, if he wasn't happy, uh, we were uh, fuming. We were absolutely... I don't know what expression to use, but uh, it's obvious that if he doesn't say sorry to everybody, he's out. Uh, he's out. Zaccagno calls him the worst professional he had ever seen and insists he will not play again unless he apologises. He does. And he continues to play in goal for Swindon in what turns out to be a, another brilliant campaign. There were 11 games unbeaten going into February, but things off the field had begun to turn. Ray had been replaced as chairman in October and into January, owner Andrew Black decides to pull his funding, convinced that the club is set to be sold. In case it wasn't sold, Swindon had to raise some cash uh, and Matt Ritchie was sold to Bournemouth and De Canio absolutely kicks off. He calls it a breach of his contract and threatens to walk away from the club. A buyer is found in, in March, sorry, in, uh, in February, but De Canio gives a weak ultimatum. He says if the deal doesn't go through in the next week, he is going to walk away. The EFL don't ratify the deal, but it's widely accepted to be going through the next day. But a man of his word, De Canio walks out and leaves Swindon in sixth position on February the 18th. They had a game against Tranmere the next day, which if they won, they could have gone top. 
and it was basically widely known that the takeover was going to go through. The craziness doesn't end there. On the Wednesday, so two days after he leaves, Takanyo is captured on CCTV, letting himself into the county ground with a, with a staff member and taking pictures of his successes at Swindon off the walls of the, of the, uh, of the stadium inside. Kevin McDonald is appointed after the uh, takeover goes through. He only wins four league games. Swindon finished sixth and are beaten by Brentford on penalties. Widely believed that if Takanya had stuck around, the future of, uh, of Swindon would have been very, very different indeed. Although Andrew Black, the owner, came out afterwards, shedding some doubt, maybe, just on the managerial ability of Takanya. Uh, it's important to point out that they had a transfer embargo put on them in that second season for overspending. He was definitely blessed with a fair bit of cash. But either way, Tacanio, surely one of the most successful managers in a short stint of any team in the EFL, taking a relegated club to being easy champions within touching distance of the championship. But it all ended very, very sourly. And there were certainly some talking points throughout his playing career and certainly throughout his time at the county ground. <laughs> Thank you to George for his EFL Rewind. Thanks as well go to James Chester and to Andrew Umbers for joining us on this week's Going Up, Going Down podcast. I love the stories that we tell on EFL Rewind. One of the reasons why it's enjoyable to do them on this podcast is because it feels like very in keeping with what The Athletic itself offers on the written part of the website. And on The Athletic site, you've got a whole host of football writers providing the best content possible uh, during isolation, during these strange times. So just to suggest to anyone that hasn't signed up to The Athletic to do so today, to give it a go by visiting theathletic.com forward slash EFL pod. That's E-F-L-P-O-D. Give The Athletic a go today. As for these podcasts, well, we are just one of many podcasts in The Athletic stable. Tons and tons of audio content. All of the podcasts available for free on all podcast platforms. They're available ad-free on The Athletic site if you want to listen through there. So thanks so much for tuning in. We'll be back again next week with the Going Up, Going Down podcast brought to you by The Athletic.